0: Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Stiff Upper Lip Jeeves, by P. G. Woodhouse. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. Stiff Upper Lip Jeeves was published in 1962 and is a sequel to How Right You Are, Jeeves, which we bookcast last year. Woodhouse was getting older when he wrote Stiff Upper Lip Jeeves, and in fact, he would not write another Bertie and Jeeves book for a long time after he wrote this one. It will be another nine years. Stiff Upper Lip Jeeves. Was the penultimate book in the Bertie and Jeeves series. The last one, which Uvula Audio will probably present in 2012, was Jeeves and the Tie That Binds, and that was published in 1971. What is the plot of Stiff Upper Lip Jeeves? Well, all great heroes have their challenges. Dante had his Inferno, Odysseus had to get past Scylla and Charybdis, Doc Savage had Johnny Sunlight. And this time Bertie Worcester has to darken the dangerous halls of Totley Tower again to avoid the unwelcome bans of matrimony with Miss Madeline Bassett. The newt-breeding zealot Gussie Finknoddle must finally marry Loopy Madeline or Bertie is expected to take his place. Understandably, Bertie is aghast. And now, Stiff Upper-Lip Jeeves, Volume 1. Chapter 1 I marmaladed a slice of toast with something of a flourish, and I don't suppose I have ever come much closer to saying tra-la-la, as I did for the lathering, for I was feeling in mid-season form this morning. God, as I once heard Jeeves put it, was in his heaven, and all right with the world. He added, I remember, some great stuff about larks and snails, but that's a side issue, and need not detain us. It is no secret in the circles in which he moves that Bertram Worcester... Though as glamorous as one could wish, when night has fallen and revels get under way, is seldom a ball of fire at the breakfast table. Confronted with eggs and pea, he tends to pick cautiously at them, as if afraid they may leap from the plate and snap at him. Listless about sums it up, not much balance to the ounce. But today, vastly different conditions had prevailed. All had been verve, if that's the word I want, an animation. Well. When I tell you that after sailing through a couple of sausages like a tiger of the jungle tucking into its luncheon coolie, I was now as indicated about to tackle the toast and marmalade. I fancy I need say no more. The reason for this improved outlook on the proteins and carbohydrates is not far to seek. Jeeves was back earning his weekly envelope once more at the old stand. Her butler having come down with an ailment of some sort, my Aunt Dahlia, My good and deserving aunt had borrowed him for a house party she was throwing at Brinkley Court, her Worcestershire residence, and he had been away for more than a week. Jeeves, of course, is a gentleman's gentleman, not a butler. But if the call comes, he can bottle with the best of them. It's in his blood. His Uncle Charlie is a butler, and no doubt he has picked up many a hint on technique from him. He came in a little later to remove the debris, and I asked him if he had a good time at Brinkley. Extremely pleasant, thank you, sir. More than I had in your absence. I felt like a child of tender years, deprived of its nanny. If you don't mind me calling you a nanny. Not at all, sir. Though, as a matter of fact, I was giving myself a slight edge putting it that way. My Aunt Agatha, the one who eats broken bottles and turns into a werewolf at the time of the full moon, generally refers to Jeeves as my keeper. Yes, I missed you sorely and had no heart for whooping it up with the lads at the drones. From sport to sport, they... Uh, how does the gag go? Sir. I heard you pull it once with reference to Freddy Widgeon, when one of his girls had given him the bird. Uh, something about hurrying. Ah, uh, yes, sir. From sport to sport, they hurry me to stifle my regret. And when they win a smile from me, they think that I forget. That was it. Not your own, by any chance, was it? No, sir. An old English drawing-room ballad. Oh, well, that's how it was with me. But tell me all about Brinkley. How is that Dahlia? Mrs. Travers appeared to be in her customary robust health, sir. And how did the party go off? Reasonably satisfactory, sir. Only reasonably? The demeanour of Mr. Travers cast something of a gloom on the proceedings. He was low-spirited. "'He always is when Adalia fills the house with guests. I've known even a single foreign substance in the woodwork to make him drain the bitter cup.' "'Very true, sir, but on this occasion I think his despondency was due principally to the presence of Sir Watkin Bassett.' "'You don't mean that old crumb was there?' I said great scotting, for I knew if there is one man for whose incise my uncle Tom has the most vivid distaste, it is this Bassett. You astound me, Jeeves. I too must confess to a certain surprise at seeing the gentleman at Brinkley Court, but no doubt Mrs. Travers felt it incumbent upon her to return his hospitality. You will recollect that Sir Watkin recently entertained Mrs. Travers and yourself at Totley Towers. I winced intending i presume merely to refresh my memory he had touched an exposed nerve there was some cold coffee left in the pot and i took a sip of it to restore my equanimity the word entertained is not well chosen jeeves if locking a fellow in his bedroom as near as a toucher with guides to his wrists and stationing the local police force on the lawn below to ensure that he doesn't nip out the window at the end of a knotted sheet is your idea of entertaining it isn't mine not by a jugful I don't know how well you are up in the Worcester archives, but if you've dipped into them to any extent, you will probably recall the sinister affair of Sir Watkin Bassett and my visit to his Gloucestershire home. He and my Uncle Tom are rival collectors of what are known as objecta art, and on one occasion he pinched a silver cow creamer, as the things are called, from the relation by marriage, and Aunt Dahlia and Self went to Totley to pinch it back. An enterprise which, though crowned with success, as the expression is, so nearly landed me in the jug that when reminded of that house of horror, I still quiver like an aspen, if aspens are things I'm thinking of. Do you ever have nightmares, Jeeves? I asked, having got through with my bit of wincing. Not frequently, sir. Nor me, but when I do, the setup is always the same. I'm back at Totley Towers with Sir W. Bassett, his daughter Madeline, Roderick Spode, "'Stiffy Bing, Gussie Finknoddle, and the dog bartholomew "'all doing their stuff, and I wake, if you will pardon the expression, "'so soon after breakfast, sweating at every paw. "'Those were the times that—oh, what is it, Jeeves?' "'Try men's souls, sir.' "'They certainly did, in spades. "'So what can pass it, eh?' I said thoughtfully. "'No wonder Uncle Tom mourned and would not be comforted. "'In his position, I'd have been low-spirited myself.' Who else were among those present? Miss Bassett, sir, Miss Bing, Miss Bing's dog, and Mr. finknottle Gosh, practically the whole Totley Towers gang, not Spode. No, sir. Apparently no invitation had been extended to his lordship. His what? Mr. Spode, if you recall, recently succeeded to the title of Lord Sidcup. So he did, I'd forgotten. But Sidcup or no Sidcup, to me, he'll always be spode. There's a bad guy, Jeeves. Certainly a somewhat forceful personality, sir. I wouldn't want him in my orbit again, either. I can readily understand that, sir. Nor would I willingly foregather with Sir Watkin Bassett, Madeline Bassett, Stiffy Bing, and Bartholomew. I don't mind Gussie. He looks like a fish and keeps newts in a glass tank in his bedroom. But one condones that sort of thing in an old schoolfellow just as one condones in an old Oxford friend such as the Reverend H.P. Pinker the habit of tripping over his feet and upsetting things. How was Gussie? Pretty bobbish? No, sir. Mr. Finknottle too seemed to me in low spirits. Perhaps one of his newts had tonsillitis or something. It is conceivable, sir. You've never kept newts, have you? No, sir. Nor have I nor to the best of my knowledge have Einstein, Jack Dempsey, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, to name three others. Yet Gussie revels in their society, and is never happier than when curled up with them. It takes all sorts to make a world, Jeeves, eh?' "'It certainly does indeed, sir. Will you be lunching in?' "'No, I've got a date at the Ritz,' I said, and went off to climb into the outer crust of the English gentleman.' As I dressed, my thoughts returned to the basses, and I was still wondering why on earth Aunt Dahlia had allowed the pure air of Brinkley Court to be polluted by Sir Watkin and Associates when the telephone rang and I went into the hall to answer it. Bertie! Oh, hello, Aunt Dahlia. There was no mistaking that loved voice. As always, when we converse on the telephone, it had nearly fractured my eardrums. This aunt was at one time a prominent figure in hunting circles, and when in the saddle, so I'm told, could make herself heard not only in the field or meadow, where she happened to be, but in several adjoining counties. Retired now from active fox-chivying, she still tends to address her nephew in the tone of voice previously reserved for rebuking hounds for taking time off to chase rabbits. So, you're up and about, are you? She boomed. I thought you'd be in bed, snoring your head off. It's a little unusual for me to be in circulation at this hour, yes, but I rose today with the lark and I think the snail. Jeeves? Sir. Didn't you once tell me that snails were early risers? Yes, sir. The poet Browning in his Pippa Passes, having established that the hour of 7 a.m. goes on to say, the lark's on the wing, the snail's on the thorn. Thank you, Jeeves. I was right, Aunt Dahlia, when I slid from between the sheets... The lark was on the wing and the snail on the thorn. What the devil are you talking about, Bertie? Don't ask me, ask the poet Browning. I was merely apprising you I was up betimes. I thought it was the least I could do to celebrate Jesus' return. He got back all right, did he? Looking bronzed and fit. He was in rare form here. Bassett was terrifically impressed. I was glad to have the opportunity of solving the puzzle which had been perplexing me. Now there you have touched on something I'd very much like information on. What on earth made you invite Pop Bassett to Brinkley? I did it for the wife and kiddies. I awatted at that. You wouldn't care to amplify, I asked. It got past me to some extent. For Tom's sake, I mean... She replied with a hearty laugh that brought me to my foundations. Tom's been feeling rather low of late because of what he calls inquisitionist taxation. You know how he hates to give up. I did indeed. If Uncle Tom had his way, the revenue authorities wouldn't get so much as a glimpse of his money. Well, I thought having to fraternise with Bassett would take his mind off of it. Show him that there are worse things in the world than income tax. Our doctor here gave me the idea. He was telling me about a thing called Hodgkin's disease that you cure by giving the patient arsenic. The principle's the same, that Bassett really is the limit. When I see you, I'll tell you the story of the black amber statuette. It's a thing he's just bought for his collection. He was showing it to Tom when he was here, gloating over it. Tom suffered agonies, poor old buzzard. Jeeves told me he was low-spirited. So would you be if you were a collector and another collector you particularly disliked had got hold of a thing you'd have given your eye teeth to have in your own collection. I see what you mean. I said marvelling as I had often done before that Uncle Tom could attach so much value to objects which I personally would have preferred not to be found dead in a ditch with. The cow creamer I mentioned earlier was one of them, being a milk jug shaped like a cow of all ghastly ideas. I've always maintained fearlessly that the spiritual home of all these fellows who collect things is a padded cell in a nudie bin. It gave Tom the worst attack of indigestion he's had since he was last lured into eating lobster. And talking of indigestion, I'm coming up to London for the day, the day after tomorrow, and shall require you to give me lunch. I assured her that that would be attended to, and after the exchange of a few more civilities she rang off. That was Aunt Dahlia, Jeeves. I said coming away from the machine. Yes, sir. I fancied I recognised Mrs. Travers' voice. She wants me to give her lunch the day after tomorrow. I think we'd better have it here. She's not keen on restaurant cooking. Very good, sir. What's this black-amber statuette thing she was talking about? That is a somewhat long story, sir. Well, then don't tell me now. If I don't rush, I shall be late for my date.' I reached for my umbrella and hat and was heading for the open spaces when I heard Jeeves give that soft cough of his and turning saw that a shadow was about to fall upon what had been a day of joyous reunion. In the eye which he was fixing on me, I detected the ant-like gleam, which always seems to mean he disapproves of something, and when he said in a soupy tone of voice, "'Pardon me, sir, but are you proposing to enter the Ritz Hotel in that hat?' I knew that the time had come when Bertram must show that iron resolution of his which has been so widely publicised. In the matter of head joy, Jeeves is not in tune with modern progressive thought, his attitude being best described, perhaps, as hide-bound, and right from the start I'd been asking myself what his reaction would be to the blue alpine hat with the pink feather in it, which I had purchased in his absence. Now I knew. I could see it at G. That he wanted no piece of it, and that the picture rising before his eyes of the young master parading London's West End with it perched on his bean was plainly one he viewed with concern and looked askance at. I, in sharp distinction, was all for this Alpine lid. With me, when I sought in the shop, it had been a case of love at first sight. I was prepared to concede that it would have been more suitable for rural wear, but against this had to be set the fact that it unquestionably lent a diablerie to my appearance, and mine is an appearance that needs all the diablerie it can get. And my voice, therefore, as I replied, there was a touch of steel. Yes, Jeeves, I am. Very good, sir. You don't like this hat, do you? No, sir. Well, I do, I said rather cleverly, and went out with it tilted just the merest shade over the left eyebrow, which makes all the difference. Chapter 2 My date at the Ritz was with Admiral Stoker, younger offspring of that pirate of the Spanish Maine, Old Pop Stoker, the character who once kidnapped me on board his yacht with a view of making me marry his eldest daughter, Pauline. Long story, I won't go into it now, merely saying that the old fathead had got entirely the wrong angle on relations between his ewe lamb and myself, we being just good friends, as the expression is. Fortunately, it all ended happily, with the poppy linked in matrimony to Marmaduke, Lord Chuffnall, an ancient buddy of mine, and we're still good friends. I put in an occasional weekend with her and Chuffy, and when she comes to London on a shopping binge or whatever it may be, I see to it that she gets her calories. Quite natural, then, that when her sister Emerald came over from America to study painting at the Slade, she should have asked me to keep an eye on her and give her lunch from time to time. Kindly old Bertram, the family friend. I was a bit late, as I had foreshadowed, in getting to the tryst, and she was already there when I arrived. It struck me, as it did every time I saw her, how strange it is that members of a family can be so unalike. How different in appearance, I mean. Member A so often is from member B, and for that matter, that member B from member C, if you follow what I'm driving at. Take the Stoker trope, for instance. To look at them, you'd never have guessed they were united by ties of blood. Old Stoker resembled one of those fellows who played bit parts in gangster pictures. Pauline was of a beauty so radiant that strong men whistled after her in the street, while Emerald, in sharp contrast, distinction was just ordinary, no different from a million other nice girls, except perhaps for a touch of the Pekingese about the nose and eyes, and more freckles than you usually see. I always enjoyed putting on the nose bag with her, for there was a sort of motherliness about her which I found restful. She was one of those soothing, sympathetic girls you can take your troubles to, confident of having your hand held and your head patted. I was still a bit ruffled about Jeeves and the alpine hat, and of course told her all about it. And nothing could have been in better taste than her attitude. She said it sounded as if Jeeves must be something like her father. She'd never met him. Jeeves, I mean, not her father, whom, of course, she hadn't met frequently. And I'm told I had been quite right in displaying the velvet hand in the iron glove, or rather the other way round, isn't it? Because it never did to let oneself be bossed. Her father, she said, always tried to boss everybody, and in her opinion, one of these days some haughty spirit was going to haul off and poke him in the nose, which she said, and I agreed with her, would do him all the good in the world. I was so grateful for these kind words, I asked her if she would care to come to the theatre on the following night i knowing where I could get hold of a couple of tickets for a well-spoken-up musical. But she said she couldn't make it. I'm going down to the country this afternoon to stay with some people. I'm taking the four o'clock train at Paddington. Going to be there long? Oh, about a month. At the same place all the time? Of course. She spoke lightly, but I found myself eyeing her with a certain respect. Myself, I'd never found a host and hostess who could stick my presence for more than about a week. Indeed, long before that, as a general rule, the conversation at the dinner table is apt to turn to the subject of how good the train service in London is. Those present, obviously, hoping wistfully that Bertram will avail himself of it. Not to mention the timetables left in your room with a large cross against the 235 and, the legend, excellent train, highly recommended. Their name's Bassett. I started visibly. They live in Gloucestershire. I started visibly. Their house is called... Totsy Towers! She started visibly, making three visible starts at all. Oh, you know them. Well, that's fine. You can tell me about them. This surprised me somewhat. Why don't you know them? Well, I've only met Miss Bassett. What are the rest of them like? It was a subject on which I was a well-informed source, but I hesitated a moment, asking myself if I ought to reveal to this frail girl what she was letting herself in for. Then I decided that the truth must be told, and nothing held back, cruel to hide the facts from her and allow her to go off to Todley Towers unprepared. The inmates of the leper colony, under advisement, I said, consist of Sir Watkin Bassett, his daughter Madeline, his niece Stephanie Bing, A chap named Spode, who recently took to calling himself Lord Sidcup, and Stiffy Bing's Aberdeen Terrier, Bartholomew, the last of whom you would do well to watch closely if he gets anywhere near your ankles, for he biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. So you've met an Adeline, have you? What would you think of her? She seemed to weigh this. A moment or two passed before she surfaced again. When she spoke, it was with a spot of weariness in her voice is she a great friend of yours far from it well she struck me as a drip she is a drip of course she's very pretty you have to hand her that i shook the loaf looks are not everything i admit that any red-blooded sultan or pasha, if offered the opportunity of adding m bassett to the personnel of his harem would jump to it without hesitation but he would regret his impulsiveness before the end of the first week. She's one of those soppy girls riddled from head to foot with whimsy. She holds the view that the stars are called Daisy Chain, that rabbits are gnomes and attends to the Fairy Queen, and that every time a fairy blows its wee nose a baby is born, which, as we know, is not the case. She's a drooper. Yes, that's how she seemed to me. Rather like one of those lovesick maidens in Patience. Eh? Hey. Patience? Gilbert Solomon, Haven't you ever seen it? Oh, yes, now I recollect. My Aunt Agatha made me take her son Thomas to it once. Not at all bad little show, I thought, though a bit highbrow. We now come to Sir Watkin Bassett, Madeline's father. Yes, she mentioned her father. And well, she might. What's he like? What are those horrors from outer space? It may seem a hard thing to say of any man, but I would rank Sir Watkin Bassett as an even bigger stinker than your father. Oh, would you call my father a stinker? Not to his face, perhaps. He thinks you're crazy, Bertie. Bless his old heart. And you can't say he's wrong. Anyway, he's not so bad if you rub him the right way. Very possibly, but if you think a busy man like myself has time to go rubbing your father, either with or against the grain, you are greatly mistaken. The word stinker, by the way, reminds me there was one redeeming aspect of life at Totley Towers. The presence in the neighbouring village of the Reverend H.P. Stinker Pinker, the local curate. you like him. He used to play football for England. Watch out for Spode, though. He's about eight feet high and has the sort of eye that can open an oyster at 60 paces. Take a line through gorillas you have met and you will get the idea. You do seem to have some nice friends. No friends of mine, though I'm fond of young Stiffy. I'm always prepared to clasp her to my bosom, provided she doesn't start something up. But then she always does start something up. I think that completes the roster. Oh no, Gussie. I was forgetting Gussie. Who's he? Fellow I've known for years and years. He's engaged to Madeline. A chap named Gussie Finknoddle. She uttered a sharp squeak. Does he wear horn rimmed glasses? Yes. And keep newts? In great profusion. Why do you know him? I've met him. We met at a studio party. I didn't know he we ever went to studio parties. He went to this one, and we talked most of the evening. I thought he was a lamb. You mean a fish. No, I don't mean a fish. He looks like a fish. He does not look like a fish, Bertie. Well, have it your way, I said tolerantly, knowing it was futile to attempt to reason with a girl who had spent an evening vis-a-vis Gussie Finknordle and didn't think he looked like a fish. So there you are. That's Totley Towers. Wild horses wouldn't drag me there. Not that I suppose they ever would try but you'll probably have a good enough time, I said, for I didn't wish to depress her unduly. It's a beautiful place, and it isn't as if you were going there to pinch a cow creamer. To do what? Nothing, nothing. I was just thinking of something, I said, and turned the conversation to other topics. She gave me the impression when we parted of being a bit pensive, which I could well understand, and I wasn't feeling too unpensive myself. There's a touch of the superstitious in my makeup and the way the bassett menage seemed to be raising its ugly head, if you know what I mean, struck me as sinister. I had a... what's the word? Begins with a P. Pre-something. Pre-sentiment? That's the baby. I had a pre-sentiment that I was being tipped off by my guardian angel that Totley Towers was trying to come back into my life and that I would be well advised to watch my step and keep a skinned eye. It was, consequently, a thoughtful Bertram Worcester, who half an hour later sat toying with a stoop of brandy in the smoking-room of the Drones Club. To the overtures of fellow members who wanted to hurry me from sport to sport, I turned a deaf ear, for I wished to brood, and I was trying to tell myself that all this Totley Towers business was purely coincidental and meant nothing. "'when the smoking-room waiter slid up and informed me that a gentleman stood "'without asking to have a speech with me. "'A clerical gentleman named Pinker,' he said. "'And I gave another of my visible starts, "'the pre sentiment stronger on the wing than ever. "'It wasn't that I had any objection to the sainted Pinker. "'I loved him like a brother. "'We were up at Oxford together, "'and our relations have always been on strictly David and Jonathan lines.' But while technically not a resident of Totley Towers, he helped the vicar vet the souls of the local yokels in the adjoining village of Totley in the world. And that was near enough to it to make this sudden popping up of his deepen the apprehension I was feeling. It seemed to me it only needed so Watkin Bassett, Madeline Bassett, Roderick Spode, and the dog Bartholomew to saunter in arm in arm, and I would have a full hand. My respect for my guardian angel's astuteness hit a new high. A gloomy bird with a marked disposition to take the dark view and make one's flesh creep. But there was no gainsaying that he knew his stuff. Bung him in, I said, dully. And in due season the Reverend H.P. Pinker lumbered across the threshold and advancing with outstretched hand tripped over his feet and upset a small table his almost invariable practice when moving from spot to spot in any room where there is furniture. Chapter 3 It was odd that Stinker fell over everything when you come to think of it, because after representing his university for four years and his country for six on the football field, he still turns out for the Harlequins when he can get a Saturday off for saving souls and when footballing he's as steady on his pins as a hart or roe or whatever the animals are that don't trip over their feet and upset things. I've seen him a couple of times in the arena and was profoundly impressed by his virtuosity. Rugby football is more or less a sealed book to me, I never having gone in for it, but even I could see that he was good. The liesomeness with which he moved hither and thither was most impressive, as was his homicidal ardour when doing what I believe is called tackling. Like the Canadian Mounted Police, he always got his man, and when he did so, the air was vibrant with the excited cries of morticians in the audience making bids with the bodies. He's engaged to be married to Stiffy Bing, and his long years of football should prove an excellent preparation for setting up house with her. The way I look at it is that when a fellow has had plug-uglies and cleated boots doing a shuffle off to buffalo on his face Saturday after Saturday since he was a slip of a boy he must get to fear nothing, not even marriage with a girl like Stiffy, who from early childhood has seldom let the sun go down without starting some loony enterprise calculated to bleach the hair of one and all. There was plenty to spare of the Reverend H.P. Pinker. Even as a boy, I imagine, he must have burst seams and broken try-your-weight machines, and grown to man's estate, he might have been Roderick Spode's twin brother. Purely in the matter of Thews and sinews and tonnage, I mean, of course, for whereas Roderick Spode went about seeking whom he might devour and was a consistent menace to pedestrians and traffic, Stinker, no doubt a fiend in human shape when assisting the Harlequins' rugby football club to dismember some rival troop of athletes, was in private life a gentle soul with whom a child could have played. In fact, I once saw a child doing so. Usually when you meet this man of God, you find him beaming, I believe is Mary Smiles, one of the sights of Totley in the World, as it was of Madeline College, Oxford, when we were up there together. But now I seem to note in his aspect a certain gravity, as if he had just discovered a schism in his flock or found a couple of choir boys smoking reefers in the churchyard. He gave me the impression of a 200-pound curate with something on his mind besides his hair. Upsetting another table, he took a seat and said he was glad he had caught me. I thought I'd find you with the drones. You have, I assured him. What brings you to the meat trop? I came up for a harlequins committee meeting. And how are they all? Oh, fine. That's good. I've been worrying myself sick about the harlequins committee. Well, how you been keeping, stinker? I've been all right. You free for dinner? Sorry, I've got to get back to Totley. Too bad. Jeeves tells me Sir so Watkin and Madeline and Stiffy have been staying with my aunt at Brinkley. Yes. Have they returned? Yes. And how's Stiffy? Oh, fine. And Bartholomew? Oh, fine. And your parishioners going strong, I trust? Oh, yeah, they're fine. I wonder if anything strikes you about this slice of give and take I've just recorded. No. "'Oh, surely, I mean, here we were, Stinker Pinker and Bertram Worcester, "'bodies who had known each other virtually from the egg, "'and we were talking like a couple of strangers, "'making conversation on a train. "'At least he was. "'And more and more I became convinced "'that his bosom was full of the perilous stuff "'that weighs upon the heart, "'as I remember G's putting it once. "'I persevered in my efforts to uncork him. "'Well, Stinker,' I said, "'what's new? "'Has Pop Bassett given you that vicarage yet?' This caused him to open up a bit. His manner became more animated. No, not yet. He doesn't seem to be able to make up his mind. One day he says he will, and the next day he says he's not so sure. He'll have to think it over more. I frowned. I disapproved of this shilly shallying. I can see how it must be throwing a spanner into Stinker's whole foreign policy, putting him in a spot, and causing him alarm and despondency. He can't marry Stiffy on a curate stipend. So they've got to wait till Pop Bassett gives him a vicarage, which he has in his gift. And while I personally, though fond of the young gumboil, would run a mile in tight shoes to avoid marrying Stiffy, I knew him to be strongly in favour of signing her up. Something always happens to put him off. I think he was about ready to close the deal before he went to stay at Brinkley, but unfortunately I bumped into a valuable vase of his and broke it. Seemed to rankle him. I hate to sigh. It's always what Jeeves would call most disturbing to hear that a chap with whom you have plucked the gowans fine, as the expression is, isn't making out as well as could be wished. I was all set to follow this pinker's career with considerable interest, but the way things were shaping up, it began to look as if there wasn't going to be a career to follow. You move in a mysterious way your wonders to perform, stinker. I believe you would bump into something if you were crossing the Gobi Desert.' I've never been in the Gobi Desert. Well, don't go. It's not safe. I suppose Stiffy's sore about this. What's the word? Not Vaseline. Vacillation, that's it. She chafes, I imagine, at this vacillation on Bassett's part and resents him letting I dare not wait upon I would like the poor cat in the adage. Not my own, by the way. Jesus. Pretty steamed up, isn't she? Yeah, she is rather. I don't blame her. Enough to upset any girl. Pop Bassett has no right to keep gumming up the course of true love like this. No. He needs a kick in the pants. Yes. If I were you, Stiffy, I'd put a toad in his bed or strict in his soup. Yes, and talking of Stiffy, Bertie. He broke off and I eyed him narrowly. There could be no question in my mind I'd been right about that perilous stuff. His bosom was obviously chock full of it. There's something the matter, isn't there, stinker? No, there isn't. Why do you say that? Your manner is rather strange. You remind me of a faithful dog looking up into its proprietor's face, as if it were trying to tell him something. Are you trying to tell me something? He swallowed once or twice. His colour deepened, which took a bit of doing, for even when his soul is in repose, he always looks like a clerical beetroot. It was as though the collar he buttons at the back was choking him. In a hoarse voice, he said, Bertie? Yes? Uh, Bertie? Still here, old man, hanging on your lips. Uh, Bertie, are you busy just now? Not more than usual. Could you maybe get away for a day or two? I suppose I could manage, yes. Then you could come to Totley. To stay with you, do you mean? No, to stay at Totley Towers. I stared at the man wide-eyed, as the expression is. Had it not been that I knew him to be abstemiousness itself, rarely indulging in anything stronger than a light lager, not even that during Lent, I should have leaped to the conclusion that there beside me sat a curate who had been having a couple. My eyebrows rose till they nearly disarranged my front hair. Stay where? Stinker, you're not yourself, or you wouldn't be gibbering on like this. You can't have forgotten the ordeal I passed through last time I went to Totley Towers. I know, but there's something Stiffy wants you to do for her. She wouldn't tell me what it was, but she said it was most important and that you would have to be on the spot to do it. I drew myself up. I was cold and resolute. You are crazy, stinker. I don't see why you say that. Then let me explain why your whole scheme falls to the ground. To begin with is it likely that after what has passed between us so what can be would issue an invitation to one who has always been to him a pain in the neck to end all pains in the neck if ever there was a man who was all in favor of me taking the high road while he took the low road it is this same Bassett. his idea of a happy day is one spent with at least a hundred miles between him and bertram "'Madeline wouldn't want you if you sent her a wire "'asking if you could come for a day or two. "'She never consults Sir so what can about guests. "'It's an understood thing that she has anyone she wants to at the house.' "'This I knew to be true, but I ignored the suggestion and proceeded remorselessly. "'In the second place, I know Stiffy, a charming girl, "'whom, as I was telling Emerald Stoker, "'I am always prepared to clasp to my bosom. "'At least I would be if she wasn't engaged to you.' but one who is a cross between a ticking bomb and a poltergeist. She lacks that balanced judgment which we like to see in girls. She gets ideas, and if you care to call them bizarre ideas, it will be all right with me. I need scarcely remind you that when I last visited Totley Towers, she egged you on to pinch Constable Eustace Oates's helmet. The one thing a curate should shrink from doing if he wishes to rise to heights in the church." "'She is in short about as loony a young shrimp as ever wore a windswept hairdo. "'What this commission is that she has in mind for me we cannot say, "'but going by the form book, "'I see it as something totally unfit for human consumption. "'Did she even hint at its nature?' "'No, I asked of course, "'but she said she'd rather keep it under her hat till she saw you.' "'Well, she won't see me!' "'You won't come to Totley then?' "'Not within fifty miles of the sewage dump.' She'll be terribly disappointed. You would administer spiritual solace. That's your job. Tell her these things are sent to try us. She'll probably cry. Nothing better for the nervous system. It does something, I forget what, to the glands. Ask any well-known Holly Street physician. I suppose he saw that my iron front was not to be shaken, for he made no further attempt to sell the idea to me. With a sigh that seemed to come up from the soles of the feet, He rose and said goodbye, knocked over the glass from which I had been refreshing myself, and withdrew. Knowing how loath Bertram Worcester always is to let a pal down and fail him in his hour of need, you are probably thinking that this distressing scene had left me shaken, but as a matter of fact it had bucked me up like a day at the seaside. Let's review the situation. Ever since breakfast, my guardian angel had been scaring the pants off me by practically saying in so many words that Totley Towers was all set to re-enter my life, and it was now clear that what he had in mind had been the imminence of his plea to me to go there, he feeling that in a weak moment I might allow myself to be persuaded against my better judgment. Well, that peril was now past. Totley Towers had made its spring and missed by a mile, and I no longer had a thing to worry about. It was with a light heart that I joined a group of pleasure-seekers who were playing darts and cleaned them up with effortless skill. Three o'clock was approaching when I left the club en route for home, and it must have been getting on for half-past when I hove alongside the apartment house where I have my abode. There was a cab standing outside, laden with luggage. From its window, Gussie Fickdoddle's head was poking out. I remember thinking once again how mistaken Emerald Stoker had been about his appearance. Seeing him steadily, if not whole, I could detect in his aspect no trace of the lamb. But he was looking so like a halibut that if he hadn't been wearing horn-rimmed spectacles, a thing halibuts seldom do, I might have supposed myself to be gazing on something AWOL from a fishmonger's slab. I gave him a friendly yodel and he turned the spectacles in my direction. Oh, hello, Bertie, he said. I've just been calling on you. I left a message with Jeeves. Your aunt told me to tell you she's coming to London the day after tomorrow and she wants you to give her lunch. Yes, she was on the phone to that effect this morning. I suppose she thought you'd forget to notify me. Come in, have some orange juice, I said, for it is to that muck that he confines himself with making whoopee. He looked at his watch and his eyes lost the gleam that always comes into them when orange juice is mentioned. I wish I could, but I can't. He sighed. I should miss my train. I'm off to Totley on the four o'clock at Paddington. Oh, really? Well, well, look out for a friend of yours. We'll be on it. Emerald Stoker. Stoker? Stoker? Emerald Stoker? Girl with freckles. American. Looks like a Pekingese of the better sort. She tells me she met you at a studio party the other day and you talked about Newt's. His face cleared. Oh, yes, of course. Now i placed her. I didn't get her name that day. Yes, we had a long talk about newts. She used to keep them herself as a child. Only she called them guppies. Most delightful girl. I shall enjoy seeing her again. I don't know when I met a girl who attracted me more. Except, of course, for Madeline, right? His face darkened. He looked like a halibut. Let's take offence at a rude mock from another halibut. Madeline, don't talk to me about Madeline. Madeline makes me sick. He hissed. Paddington. He shouted at the charioteer and was gone with the wind, leaving me gaping after him. All of a twitter.